Welcome to our Turtle Creek Lane podcast. Today, I'm here with my son, Stephen, and our guest is Dr. Ben Bickman. He is a metabolic scientist from Brigham Young University as a professor as well. Welcome, Ben. Tell us a little bit more about what you do as a researcher. I will. Yes, Jennifer, Stephen, thank you so much. Uh, it is um, it is a pleasure to be able to chat with you guys about all things health and metabolism. And it's fun for me to see Stephen again. It's a little known fact here that you have me here because of my scientific expertise, but I'm just glad to see Stephen uh, now. He was a student of mine, yep. <laughs> and pretty much, pretty much, Stephen owes his wonderful marriage to me. <laughs> That's right. Oh my goodness, you have to tell them just briefly that story. It, it is true. It is true. <laughs> yeah. So Stephen was just another nice uh, young man, undergraduate, and he wanted to get into this weightlifting class that I was teaching. But not a normal class for me to teach. I sometimes just teach it just for fun. But there was a gal in there that he had his eye on, and and he just said, hey, Dr. Bickman, can I just kind of attend the class? I, I can't take it for credit. And I just kind of gave him a little wink. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so you <laughs> knew? His history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you weren't, well, Stephen wasn't subtle about it. Yeah, well, you weren't really supposed to be able to audit weightlifting classes, or else like the class would just be huge. I mean, everyone's going to audit a weightlifting class, right? But Oh uh, yeah, of course. You uh, you, you definitely hooked me up. You, yeah. you were there to get big biceps and and a wife. That's and right. Well, and, and you also there was a couple other guys in the class chasing Kim, and you kind of like enforced this "don't <laughs> flirt with Kim" rule unless it's Stephen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which which worked. Yeah. <laughs> gave you room to, to move in. Well, it still took me two semesters, you. but uh, but it ended up yeah. working. <laughs> Yeah, I, I opened the lane, so to speak, and you went driving right there. Exactly. exactly. And we are very reason. grateful. We are. Yeah. Well, she's a wonderful addition to the family. She so is. beyond beyond that, other than um, introducing Stephen and Kimmy, my, my main focus since that time has been once I hooked them up, then I focused on <laughs> my scientific career. First and things really, first. Yeah, that's right. Priorities. <laughs> to sum it up, um, I, really, I focus on human metabolism and that means I focus on the hormone insulin, one of the um, least understood and, and perhaps most powerful influences, hormones in the body that dictates whether the body's going to be thriving and, and even perhaps living longer uh, as opposed to sick, um, being sickly and higher mortality. Almost every chronic disease is in some way connected to the body's insulin regulation, whether insulin is working well or not, and whether insulin levels are high or not. So that's sort of the high level description, but that, that does have relevance. So anyone listening to this uh, and they're thinking, well, if he's talking about insulin resistance, he's just talking about diabetes, if he's talking about insulin at all. But the truth is the specific aspects of insulin I focus on has a bearing on Alzheimer's disease, on migraine headaches, on heart failure, high blood pressure, infertility, the most common forms of infertility in men and women, and in women that's polycystic ovarian syndrome, are, are totally dependent. Those dis disorders are totally metabolic, totally dependent on insulin, fatty liver disease, joint and, and muscle problems, all of these and more, skin problems, uh, they're all in some way connected to insulin not working well in the body. And I mentioned it a moment ago, but namely that's a condition called insulin resistance which we can get into more, but that's the high level 
what I focus on, how can we optimize human metabolic health and the sum of all of it, sort of spoiler alert, the sum of it all is live a life keeping insulin in control. And so Ben, tell us a little bit what affects insulin? You say, you know, we become insulin resistant. What has caused people or us to become insulin resistant? Or, or maybe let's, even before we do that, what is insulin? It's just, I think most people who are listening probably yeah. have an idea, but maybe just like a yep. quick 10 second, this is what insulin is, this is what it does. Yeah, in fact, yeah, that's a great way to start. So defining um, insulin and insulin resistance, and then how do we get there? Yeah, so insulin itself is a hormone that we are all making from our from the pancreas. Now, a type 1 diabetic doesn't, and so a type 1 diabetic will take insulin therapy, and of course, it's, it's essential. Now, insulin resistance is really two things. It's when the hormone insulin isn't working the right way throughout the body. For example, in the situation of polycystic ovarian syndrome, insulin isn't working normally when it comes to the ovaries. And that, that matters because every cell in the body has insulin receptors. Every single cell in our blood, in our brain, in our bones, in our muscles, it doesn't matter. Insulin will tell that all of those cells to do something. So when that something, when that cell signal becomes compromised, that's called insulin resistance. So that's one part of the insulin resistance. But the second part is equally important. And that is that blood insulin levels are significantly higher so they're always higher, which, which we call, in, in the biz, we call that hyperinsulinemia. So the person has hyperinsulinemia or high insulin, and insulin isn't working quite the right way throughout the body's cells. So that is the villain. That is insulin resistance. And interestingly, one of the main causes of insulin resistance is too much insulin. And that might seem, that might seem kind of paradoxical where I just said too much insulin is part of the problem. It is, and it's also a cause. Essentially, it's kind of reflective of a fundamental biological principle. Too much of something in the body will result in a resistance to that something. And people kind of intuitively know this. Someone who's an avid coffee drinker, they will know in their honest moments, once upon a time, I would just drink one cup of coffee, and that was enough to get me through the day. And now over time, as they become resistant to, to the caffeine, now they need four or five cups of coffee. So the same principle applies with insulin. If someone is living a life where they are constantly pushing their insulin up, that is going to result in eventually a resistance to the insulin. And that gets us, of course, to lifestyle. And so really quick, one of the ways I think about insulin, like kind of as a layperson, and this isn't perfectly correct, probably, but it's probably a framework that is directionally correct or correct enough to make actionable decisions. But when I think about it, insulin, when I eat food, insulin is one of the main determinants. Like insulin kind of decides, okay, Steven's eating this food. Do we burn it as energy or do we store it as fat? Mm -hmm. There's really, when you eat, whenever you ingest something, your body can do two things with it. It can either burn it or store it. And insulin is kind of the decision maker that says, hey, Steven, we're either going to store as body fat or burn as energy the calories you just consumed. And that's really what yeah. insulin's job is. And the more insulin that gets together, it's like mob mentality. The more insulin that gets together in, the, in, in my body when I eat, the more of like, hey, we're going to store this as energy. We're going to store this as body fat and not burn it as energy. Is that, yeah, is that well kind said. of a simplistic way of thinking about yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Well, insulin does 
you know, thousands of things in the body, but yes, you could, you could sum it up in one perspective through its effects on energy. And, and that, that is well said that at every cell insulin tells the body what to do with energy. And basically it tells the body to, to hold on to energy. Insulin abhors the body spending energy. And this is evident even at the level of the whole body, although it acts at the level of each of our billions of cells, insulin tells cells to store energy. And so at the level of the whole body, it actually reduces metabolic rate. You can, and this is known in humans. You can put people on, give them different meals, different diets, one that is spiking their insulin, um, and that will actually depress the metabolic rate compared to normal, as opposed to keeping insulin low, which accelerates the metabolic rate. And this can be as much as almost 300 calories in a day. That's a significant amount of energy that someone could, you know, you'd have to be on the stair stepper for an hour to burn 300 calories or, or eat a diet that keeps your insulin in control. And now your metabolic rate is just that much higher. That is a significant and, and meaningful change. And so, so metabolic rate at the whole body is significantly changed and the effects at the fat cells um, very, very especially are changed where insulin stimulates the fat cells to pull in energy and inhibits the fat cell from breaking it down. So high insulin is like a double whammy. It slows down how much you burn and it increases how much you store. Yep. That's exactly right. So thus, thus anyone who's listening to this, who's interested in they're they're looking at their body fat or they're pinching it or jiggling it. And they're thinking this didn't used to be here, or I've had this for entirely too long and I'd like to start fighting it. That is awesome. It is a smart, it's good to, to want to make that change. And the key is to shift the diet in such a way that insulin can come down, give the body a break from insulin. And then when insulin comes down, fat cells can start to shrink. And that, that phenomenon is across all of biology. Every organism from, from little fruit flies to humans and all of them in between, you cannot make the fat start to go down on the body unless insulin is down. It's, it is a, a fundamental truth when it comes to body fat regulation. So Ben, teach us how to do that. How do we eat foods that get our insulin to go down? Yeah, right. The, I always say there's one key, the first pillar, and I have four, and maybe we don't have to get into all of them, but the first pillar is first for a reason, first principle. It's the most powerful. It is control carbohydrates. The power there is that carbohydrates have the greatest effect on spiking blood glucose. That's understandable. It is made of glucose when we eat these starches and sugars. And of course, the more refined it is, the higher the spike is going to be. Now, what do you mean by refined? Define refined carbohydrate versus a regular carbohydrate. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Thanks for stopping me on that. Yeah, so at, at the simplest, it is that we have taken the natural food, the natural grown carbohydrate, like a fruit or a vegetable, and we have stripped away all the fiber and and even the, the vitamins and the minerals in most instances. But these refined carbohydrates, these refined starches and sugars, and typically these are the things that people are basically snacking on or eating. And I like to say if it comes in a bag or a box with a barcode, then if it's a carbohydrate, that's one to be careful with. And, and so again, that's when they've robbed, they've stripped out everything that would have been there that is beneficial and only left the one thing that you don't actually need. We don't, it's not the, it's not the carbohydrates that we need. 
um, when we're you know, eating a fruit or a vegetable. What we would want from that, um, not that we need any of it, what we would want is some of the vitamins and the minerals and these things called polyphenols or these secondary metabolites that they're called. And these are antioxidant molecules that can be healthy, but it's not the glucose. It's not the starch and the sugar that we want. And in a processed carbohydrate, that's pretty much all we've got. So that is the food. Those are the foods that spike insulin the most. And when I mean spike, well, I mean it, where you can take someone whose fasting insulin levels will be quite low, and they can eat one of these very starchy, refined foods. And even in a lean, healthy person, their glucose and their insulin, because one of insulin's main jobs is to not let the glucose stay too high for too long, they can both be elevated for up to three and even four hours. So imagine someone wakes up in the morning and they have nice, wonderfully low levels of insulin. And then they have a typical American breakfast, which is a two bowls of sugary cereal, maybe uh, a glass of orange juice. That glucose and insulin is going to be elevated uh, to maybe 10 times the insulin, maybe 10 times over what it was. And it'll take a good three or four hours for it to come back down. Which is and about then, time for lunch. And then for lunch, yep, they have. Exactly. <laughs> and so during the time yep. the insulin is elevated, not only are they storing what they just ate as body fat, their current body fat also is unable to be used as energy. As energy. So it, it yep. makes them store fat and prevents them from burning their existing fat during those four hours. Yep. It puts the body into energy lockdown. And this is something that a scientist at Harvard, a friend of mine actually named David Ludwig, has really explored this idea that when you spike insulin, not only are you putting the body, well, because you're putting the body into energy storage, you start pushing all that energy away into cells like fat cells that the brain actually gets relatively hungry. It gets relatively, um, well, deficient in energy because we've pushed all the energy away into the other body cells. And that sensation of a slight energy reduction at the level of the brain, since it prompts the brain to tell the body, hey, it's time to eat. And so you have these hunger hormones like ghrelin start to take over again. And then even though the person is swimming in a sea of energy, their fat cells are full but they can't access the energy in those fat cells, the fat that's been stored, because the insulin's too high to let it happen. So they get on this roller coaster of eating all the time, even though they have plenty of energy. They have maybe a million calories of energy in their fat cells just waiting to be used. But if insulin is high, they can never use it. I remember one time you mentioned uh, something. I remember you described the body as like a hybrid car, a hybrid energy could you, I, I don't remember exactly what you said, but I remember thinking, oh, that really helps me understand how yeah, the body metabolizes. Yeah. In fact, let me, let me, yeah, so I, I will describe often human metabolism as a hybrid, but let me use a different analogy just because I'm a professor and I like mixing things up. We could think of human metabolism as a big fuel truck. Like if someone can picture an enormous semi truck uh, driving down the highway and there's at the back of it, this massive tank filled with fuel, an actual fuel tanker. Now, as that truck is driving down the road, in several hours, it'll have to stop and fill up with fuel. Its tank will have started to run out. But it's because on that big fuel truck, there are actually two sources of fuel. One is the small fuel tank underneath the cab of the truck up close to the engine. That's a small tank. Then we have this massive fuel tanker that it's carrying on the back. But because that truck's engine metabolism, if you will, is only pulling fuel from that small little tank, it has to stop and fill up every so often. 
But imagine if it could actually tap the fuel back in its massive tank that it has to carry around anyway, then it would never need to stop and fill up. It could keep, it could do the whole drive without topping up once. That is human metabolism, where that little tank next to the engine is our storage of glucose in the body. Whereas that massive fuel tank that, it's, that we're all carrying around, that's our storage of fat. And even in a lean individual, we will have more than 100 times energy, more, more than 100 times of energy stored as fat than we do as carbohydrate. And yet, because we're only, because insulin is high, we're always stuck in carbohydrate burning mode, we have to keep filling that little carbohydrate tank up all the time. But if we could allow our insulin to go low, now we can start tapping that massive fat fuel tank that we're all carrying around. And why not? We are carrying it around. We may as well get some benefit from it and start using it. And, and so when oh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Keep going. Well, I was going to say when someone makes these changes with their diet to help their insulin come down, one of the first things they'll notice is they aren't on that roller coaster of hunger all the time because they aren't subject to that little fuel tank of glucose getting low. They can rely on their fat. And so if the little glucose tank gets low, they don't even notice because they're not using that for fuel. Well, and one thing I have really noticed, um, a lot of my followers know that our family does a no refined carbs. In fact, today is our anniversary of one year. We have gone wow. a whole year. In fact, last night at midnight, I talked to my 11-year-old daughter. She called and they were doing a big party <laughs> and she had one little piece of chocolate to celebrate. <laughs> but anyway. Good for you guys. Well, and, and, and it's been a good thing. But one thing I've noticed is that when we would have these, like, say, a little cheat day or something, and we would have, you know, these refined carbohydrates, I was hungry all day long. Like about every yeah. two to three hours, I think, why am I hungry again? Whereas if I was eating a no refined carbohydrate diet, I just found that I didn't have the hunger pains. I, I was, I mean, I was satiated. I just, you know, my brain wasn't telling me all the time. I need more food. There isn't the up and down emotional energy yep. roller coaster. Yeah, too. you're just so much more steady. And I found even with my mood, I am a lot more steady when I'm not constantly eating, you know, these refined carbohydrates. So Ben, tell them then a little bit more about the types of foods. We, we've talked about kind of not eating foods that are in a bag with a barcode because they're probably, you know, most likely refined carbohydrates. But but in a perfect world, what foods should we be eating to be able to access that big fat tank? Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, excellent. In fact, it stems from the, the first rule I just mentioned, control carbs. And then if someone follows up with the, the next three pillars, if you will, then, then, that, then they're really getting there. And namely, that is essentially, and I have more kind of witty ways of expressing this, but it's basically focusing on protein and fat and then not always eating. In other words, intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, whatever people want to call it. But by focusing on protein and fat as the key macronutrients or the key foods in their diet, that's a way not only do they have the least effect on insulin, so insulin will stay lower eating those foods, but also those are actually essential foods. There are fats that we must eat as humans for survival. There are proteins or amino acids that we must eat. And in nature... Those come together. The best proteins come with fats. And, and that, I believe, is a, is a healthy, even, dare I say, ancestral way of eating. That's the way we have been eating as a species forever. Not to get, not to dive into that too deep, but in fact, let's not get any deeper. 
Essentially, by focusing on protein and fat, we ensure that we actually meet our nutritional needs and we keep insulin low. So the power of that is, is, is uh, really, by keeping insulin low, I like, to, I like to emphasize the similarities that it has with an actual fast. And so actual fasting or time-restricted eating is undoubtedly extremely effective at keeping insulin low. If you aren't eating anything, insulin won't come up Well, eating or drinking. Um, drinking calories like a you know a soda or a juice. Now I like to define fasting as two possible states. One is a true caloric fast, when like how someone thinks of it when they aren't eating or drinking foods, and then the power there is insulin stays low, so the body is in this energy mobilization or energy using state. It's using energy, and rather than forcing the body cells to store it. In, and now with a, with a diet that focuses on those, you know, controlling carbs, prior, uh, focusing on protein and, and good fat and real fats, then you help, you also keep insulin low, but you are nourishing the body. You are bringing in energy, but insulin stays low. So I refer to that as a nutritional fast because you get some of the key benefits and the main one being insulin stays low. And, and like I mentioned earlier, the longer someone can live a life with low insulin, the evidence suggests the healthier they're going to be, the longer they're going to live. So let me ask you this. Um, uh, we're all a little bit concerned with COVID right now. And it, yeah. se it seems to me that the people that are dying, and, and not across the board, but a lot of the people that are actually succumbing to COVID seem to be people that are maybe have diabetes or that perhaps are obese or, um, and, and like over I said, a certain age. Yeah. Over a certain age. How does the way that we eat, um, like wh why are some people getting COVID and it just kind of seems to not affect them too much and then other ones get it and it, it and it kills them. Do you have any insight yeah. into that? Yeah, yeah, right. I'm glad you brought that up. It certainly is timely at the moment, um, given the global concern. Now, I will say uh, we are learning more all the time. And, and the age factor is, is across every infectious disease. The older we get, the more compromised our immune system is. And so for an aged person, that's likely just the person's reached that point and their immune system is just not optimal. Also, speaking of immune system, Part of what's relevant here, what we're learning is that some people may already have an immunity because of a recent cold um, infection. They had a cold recently, and part of their immune system are these, we have in our bodies these things called T cells. And I won't get any deeper than that, but basically there's enough of a similarity with COVID-19 to the, to the cold virus that if we've had a cold within the last year, we still have some of that memory to fight that cold virus and it is similar enough that we effectively fight off the COVID-19 virus without ever really suffering from it. Interesting. Now, those that are suffering the most um, appear to have significant or, or let me say relevant pre-existing conditions. And this is based um, on a paper published from the data that we were getting from New York in, in the midst of, in the throes of, its, of it really um, having a terrible spike. They found that 94%, so almost everyone, 94% of people who had to go to the hospital because their COVID-19 infection was that bad, they had a pre-existing condition. 
and and nine almost ninety of them had two or more. So essentially, all of them whose infection was sufficiently bad that they had to go to the hospital had 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 pre-existing conditions. And when you look at the top three pre-existing conditions, which stand apart from the rest, number one is obesity. Number two is hypertension, high blood pressure, that is. And number three is diabetes. All three of those are basically metabolic problems. Those are all linked to insulin resistance. <clears throat> and what's interesting about the, the link between having too much body fat is that fat cells actually are among the highest – how can I say this? You guys tell me if we need to kind of um, lighten it up a bit uh, topic-wise. But fat cells express – almost more than any other cell in the body, more of these access points for the virus. It's basically, if someone breathes in a virus, just getting into the body isn't enough. It's not like a bacteria where the bacteria gets in and now it just starts to grow. A bacteria is its own cell and it just starts, it just starts multiplying. A virus is a little particle that has to get into our body's cells so it needs a way to get into a cell. And then once it's in our body's cells, any of the cells in the body, now it can start to grow and, and multiply. So it needs a host spread. cell. Yeah, that's right. It needs to take over a cell. And so it needs to get into a cell. And fat cells have more of these access points for COVID-19 to get in than almost any other cell in the body. And so it stands to reason that if someone has a lot more fat cells, then there's just more places. There are more homes for this little particle to move into and start wrecking the place, start trashing the place. That is so interesting. Obesity, yeah, it's likely why obesity is number one. And I think that's important. Indeed, I'm delighted to, that we're spending some time focusing on this because as a scientist, I look at our efforts with social distancing, which will, even at the best, those are, I think we have to admit in our more honest moments, those are moderately effective interventions, even to the point that many countries in Europe are not even enforcing any social distancing or mask wearing because the data are so flimsy in that regard. But nevertheless, let's just say that it, it can be effective so we can focus on social distancing. We can hope and pray that we'll get an effective vaccine, but these vaccines are based on previous experience with like vaccines for the flu, a different virus. They're, they're at best, it'll probably be kind of moderately effective. I don't believe it will be the, the, the absolute cure that everyone's hoping it will be. So nevertheless, despite me sounding like I'm sort of cynical and we're, we're doomed, no, I don't, don't mean to sound like that. I am saying that these are wonderful efforts and we should be focusing on them, but there are also things we can't really control too well. What I think we ought to do is accept the reality that this virus is a new part of our global ecosystem. It is here to stay. I feel strongly that it will never be eradicated. So once, when we do get infected, as kind of seems inevitable, let's make sure we do everything we can so that that infection is as modest, has a modest as impact as possible. Namely, focus on our metabolic health uh, in order to basically ensure our immune health is running, working its best. So to summarize kind of what you're saying, what I'm hearing is the three biggest pre-existing conditions are driven by insulin resistance largely. And so yeah, if insulin, we can, that's right. if yeah, we insulin can, and insulin resistance. So you think about um, someone who has too much body fat, insulin stimulates, it's like a fertilizer on your fat cells. It stimulates fat cells to get bigger and to multiply. 
insulin resistance is the leading cause of hypertension, high blood pressure namely. And of course, insulin resistance is the foundation of type 2 diabetes. It's when the body has become so resistant to its own insulin that now the blood glucose levels start to climb up. Got it. That makes sense. Well, maybe moving from there, uh, I think COVID-19 and how it works with metabolism is fascinating. Um, and another thing we wanted to discuss is um, what you eat and what your kids eat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good question. Good question. So I typically, let's start in the morning. I typically will fast through breakfast. I'll have a, just a cup of herbal tea often or a cup of like yerba mate or something. But I make breakfast for the kids every morning. And breakfast is typically a mix of a few things. I just kind of cycle through. Um, it is bacon and eggs or it is some low-carb waffles that I make with some eggs and cottage cheese and, and then some, uh, some like potato, uh, not potatoes, coconut flour. And, and because of the uh, waffle iron, you can kind of make it work. And I will say we put on a lot of butter and I let them use real syrup. I don't, I, you know, I'm not trying to deny them that kind of thing. Um, and, or I make these kind of low carb, um, crepes with eggs and, um, and once again, sort of a, a low carb flour. And even then, I confess, I let them use Nutella on the crepes to roll it up. Ah. So, yeah, so I, I would want anyone to know that as I, as a dad, a scientist, um, focus, I, I sort of see my science through the lens of, of, of being a family man, and I don't want to deny my kids those kinds of indulgences, and they're growing. They, it is no problem for them. What I studiously avoid is we just don't have cereal, and we don't have toast and bagels for breakfast. Do you have, let your, do you juice? Do you, I, I know you personally do not do juice or, or Nutella, but do you have your kids do juice? No. In fact, I will, I will confess I'm quite opposed to juice. Um, juice is um, pure water and fructose. And fructose, that simple sugar fructose, is one of the, in fact, it is arguably the most dangerous of all the carbohydrates. In fact, there was a study in humans, if you'll allow me to kind of go on a tangent, that, that had these adults drink solutions rich in either glucose or rich in fructose. And both of these groups gained fat. The glucose drinkers gained relatively more of their fat in their subcutaneous fat. So in other words, they were getting fatter in the fat right under their skin, the fat that we can pinch and jiggle. And we don't like the way that looks, but it is metabolically much better. Subcutaneous fat, metabolically speaking, is, is pretty mild. It doesn't have much of a negative effect. In stark contrast, visceral fat, the fat that, we're, that, that is in our abdominal space, you know, surrounding our kidneys and our liver and our pancreas and our intestines, that is much more damaging and promotes metabolic diseases much more readily. And to make my point, the fructose drinkers were accumulating most of their fat in their visceral space. And so as a parent, I feel quite strongly that uh, we should give our kids milk and water and, and I mean, maybe an occasional smoothie where we've allowed, we've put in not only very little fruit, but we've allowed the fiber and some of the other vitamins and minerals to stay with it. That, that can be okay. But juice, when you've stripped away everything beneficial and only left the one thing that's harmful, namely the fructose, um, that's a lot of fructose that the body takes and the liver 
who has to metabolize all that fructose will turn much of it into fat. So not a good, not a good drink in my opinion. So you're a little bit more lenient than with your kids than you are with adults. Yep. That's right. That's right. Cause they're growing. So if they have these little insulin spikes, that is no problem. Their bodies need that energy. And indeed when teenagers start to go through puberty or when little kids start to go through puberty, they will naturally start to have higher insulin levels to help their, to help sort of push the explosive growth that they experience during puberty. So once again, these kids that are growing, you know, I want them to be able to enjoy these kinds of sweets. I won't indulge as often, but that also, also, nevertheless, I, I don't want these indulgences to become the norm and I don't want them to be too, too junky. So you are saying then that you give free reign to your kids to eat all of the goldfish and chips and soda that they want. You're just saying every once in a while they get some Nutella on their crepe. I mean, I, what, I, what, I, what I don't want I, and what I think you're saying is you don't go crazy with this and let your kids eat yeah. anything because... Um, I think obesity in children is a huge problem as well. And I think it's because they're constantly going after the Doritos and the, and the chips yep. and the goldfish and the, let's just keep giving them snacks all day long, all day long, spike their insulin all day long, you know, and, and then we wonder why they're, you know, so yep. overweight. Yep. In fact, I think, Jennifer, I think you're hitting a lot of very, very relevant points. Um, I would say that part of my strategy with, with Cheryl, my wife and I, we just don't bring those junky snacks into the house. We don't buy goldfish. We don't buy chips because if they're in the house, yeah, they're just yeah. going to get them. They are. They're just going to get them. And, and in that, in that reality is, is the, the necessity of parents to accept the fact that if a parent is looking at a, a, one of their children and is worried about their weight. Now, some kids are just bigger than other kids and that's a reality. And we, and so I would never want someone to misinterpret what I'm saying here, but I will say much of the health of the child depends on the parent. We can't control everything they eat and we certainly shouldn't be authoritarian dictators about it, but we should just do our best to try to create a culture in the home where we eat real food and, and these kinds of snacky little junk foods, because that's what they are, um, that they are minimal. They are rarely in the home. And whenever they make their way into the home, it is a one and done sort of here is a treat or you have your allowance money. What would you, you want to buy a little bag of goldfish? Okay. That is your treat. I am all, I'm totally in favor of that. That's okay, but it can't be the norm. And if it is in the home and there's a big box or a big bag of it, the kids are just going to get it. And it's not, I, I, I it's on the parent. It's on the parent. If the kid is getting too much of that, that's not the kid's fault. We as parents have to accept our, our role here. And, and again, I don't mean to sound mean about that. I would hate for any mom or dad to be listening to this and thinking that I'm, I'm guilting them into something. No, I don't mean to do that. I know being a parent is a brutal job, but these are small things that when we are at the grocery store, uh, may, one, make sure we go and we're not hungry and, and just it's okay. We have to just say no to the kids when they're asking or don't bring them grocery shopping. You know, we make the meals. We can talk about snacks that we want. What kind of snacks do you want? You know, it might be some hard conversations where the parents saying, look, you guys, we've been getting goldfish and crackers and, and, and let's, I really want to stop doing that. What can we do? And try to let the kids be part of that kind of counsel counseling together to find some suitable options. But it, it's it's not an easy fight, and then I don't I don't envy the parent who has to go through that. 
Um, but I will say one thing about goldfish, that's like meth for kids. If my, my I mean, my kids will, if there's goldfish around at all, I don't know what it is about those things, <laughs> yeah. but they will like, they will have goldfish, these little kind of orange dust all around their mouth. I, 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 mean, I don't think they're snorting the powder, but like they're getting close. Yeah. Well, we, we watched how, I mean, with Sam and Mickey, I mean, they both lost like, you know, 20 pounds when they went on. We kind of started no, just refined carbs. And, 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 and amazing that like and a month they or two feel later. so much better about well, this. And they're so much more athletic just gym, because the they're cakes. faster, they're quicker. Yeah. They've well, got more so energy. You see little kids, I mean, little kids want to go to the pool, especially where you guys are. They want to go play in the water and they don't want to. You know, they, they get self-conscious about it. Of course they do. And, and, and it, I hate that anyone would be, but I, I, for all the reasons you're mentioning, a kid is going to thrive if we can help their metabolic well, health. Sam, and I will like mention Jack now. We, we basically set our fat cells at puberty. By the time someone, when a little girl is finishing puberty in her mid to late teens and a boy is finishing puberty in his late teens or even early 20s, we've typically set the number of fat cells when we've finished puberty and we're now adults, our fat cell, essentially our fat cell number is set. We're done. And if we can get through puberty relatively healthy and, and you know, relatively lean, but like you said, Stephen, I mean, it, it is for kids to be a little chunky. You know, I, I get it. That's fine. But the parent just might have to, well, it's just something we want to pay attention to as parents. If we can help our kids get through puberty and get into those first years as an adult, and maintain a reasonably good health and a reasonably good body fat level, it will make it so much easier for them as adults to stay lean or, or get lean if, if they've gone beyond it. Because fat cells, really, there's two dimensions. There's the number of them and then there's the size of them. And yeah. as a, well, while you're going through puberty, you can lower both number and size. But after puberty, you can really only lower size as opposed to number yep. as well. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep, and and, and the, the contrast, the, the flip side to that too, is that after puberty, it's not as easy to make new fat cells. And and that the person hearing that would think, oh, well, that's a good thing if I can't make new fat cells. Yeah, but if you're spiking your insulin and you're forcing your fat cells to store fat, then they start, they still get bigger in size. And that's actually also very unhealthy. It's not a good way to get fat. So it's not like the alternative is any better, but yeah, if you can get through puberty with a kind of lower than uh, a low, relatively low number of fat cells, it'll just make it that much easier to stay lean um, throughout adulthood. And so getting back to what you eat and I'm going to shamelessly promote the product you've created because I've already gone through four bags of it in about two weeks. <laughs> yeah. It is it is the most phenomenal product I have ever taken, period. I love it. Um, what is it that you- Not to mention, a, it kind of tastes like a uh, Frosty from Wendy's the yeah, way we I've, make it. <laughs> I, have, I have perfected a recipe well, of it and recipe. it is yeah, so, amazing. Yeah, but so what, what, what do you eat? Yeah. So, I'd, I'd stopped at breakfast. So I typically fast through breakfast and, and that's just because it's an easy meal to fast through. I like the idea of keeping my insulin low. Insulin has come down overnight. I like the idea of keeping it low a little longer just to stay in fat burning. And, and also I tend to do my workouts sometime in the mid morning um, here on campus. I just go down to the little faculty gym and, and I'll do my workout then. And I just like working out on an empty stomach. I just feel leaner and faster and stronger than have some little lump of food in me. Nevertheless, uh, fast through breakfast and then lunch will be 
um, the shake that you're, you're mentioning. I, I genuinely appreciate it. And I'll just say, well, I'll elaborate. So I take a shake and, and the shake is built to meet the three pillars that I mentioned earlier, namely control carbohydrates, prioritize protein and don't fear fat. And so we have very few carbohydrates in it and we have mostly fat and protein. Now, I appreciate that someone listening to this may hear this and think, oh, well, I don't want to eat fat because fat makes me fat. That is just not true. We burn what we eat. And, and by, by eating fat, and which has no effect on insulin, it helps the body be in fat burning mode. And there's something wonderfully powerful about fat and protein together. Not only does the fat help us digest the protein better, but it also helps the protein work better at our muscles. Namely, if someone's eating fat and protein together in a one-to-one ratio, which is what, we, is what we have in the shake, then it helps the muscles get bigger. The muscles can get stronger than just protein alone. And anyone who's curious, um, the, the name of the shake, go to, go to a website called Get Health. And that's just get and then H-L-T-H, a fun way for spelling health, Get Health. Dot com and they can, you can learn more about it and you guys put a link in the show notes or, yeah or something, i mean I'm if sure. anyone who follows kim has seen her post about it multiple times in the past few weeks and yeah we yeah. liked so it so much that's we the shake. And that, that is lunch Mom. that is my lunch um very very often um i love the idea of not spiking my insulin and i measure my glucose levels all the time i will often wear a continuous glucose monitor and i'll tell you that thing is rock steady there's not a single hiccup and, and that, that is relevant because controlling glucose, which is related to controlling insulin, is so important to health. And, and, and thus, I can eat that lunch and be very satisfied without feeling stuffed. And it, keeps, it gives me more than enough um, energy and, and just comfort and satisfaction or satiety to, to make it easy to get to dinner. And so you say what you're saying then is when you have this glucose monitor on and you drink one of your shakes, it does nothing to your insulin. It, your insulin, yeah, literally, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah, that's right. There's not a single bump whatsoever. And I've actually just started some experiments comparing the Get Health Complete Meal Shake to other meal replacement shakes, and I've yet to find another shake so far. And I'll compare it, same number of calories, and I'm just doing these little tests on my own. And I'll share some of these results through my own modest social media in the coming weeks. But there's just something really comforting seeing that glucose stay rock steady. And, and I will say, anyone listening to this, lest you be too cynical, thinking I'm just too much of uh, promoting too much. I, as a metabolic scientist, I truly built it because I sensed an absence. There was just nothing there that was meeting what I considered to be the best rules or principles for nutrition. And so working with a couple of my brothers, um, we just decided that we could do it on our own. And, and that's the origins of, of the Get Health or the Health Code shake. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Well, and not only for me, la- last night I was just kind of, I, I have a little bit of a sweet tooth, I'm just going to say, which I, I do want to get to sweeteners in a few minutes. But I would say, you mm-hmm. know, last night when I'm just craving just that little bit of sweet that I sometimes do, it was great to make it. I, I made about a half of a shake. I just used one scoop and had it as a little chocolate shake, you know, before I went to bed. And it was great because it, it, it satiated kind of that sweet that I wanted yep. without it spiking my insulin. So, you know, not even as a, not as a meal replacement, but as just as a, perhaps a dessert. And I put a little bit of peanut butter in it and it's just, yep. you know, suddenly I've got this Reese's peanut butter, <laughs> you know, cup yep, type thing exactly and it's Jeff, good. That's funny. That's exactly what I do. Uh, I also am at my most 
my cravings are the greatest in the evening. Yes. And, and I've found that I, if I'll take the same thing, I'll make a little bit of a kind of chocolate protein. And it's, it is, like you said, it satisfies that craving and I can get through the evening and then sleep better because I haven't indulged in a bunch of junk food. So tell people now we're to dinner. Let's quickly get through dinner. And then I want to talk yeah. about sweeteners. Yep. So dinner in, in the Bickman home is typically meat and vegetables uh, at the risk of oversimplifying it. It's, that's typically what it's going to be. It's going to be some roasted kind of buttered chicken. It'll be some steaks or hamburgers without the buns or some kind of all beef hot dogs with all the veggies and, and, and the kind of low sugar condiments. And that's an important thing. People should know that most condiments like ketchup and barbecue sauce, sugar is probably the first ingredient. Um, so we get, we get sugar free versions of those things. So that's dinner. And then Jennifer, to your, to your point, I mentioned the sugar free versions. We will get sugar free. Like my, one of my daughters is just obsessed with ketchup. She can't have any meat um, except with the exception of steak, but everything else she has to have ketchup on. I'm the same so way. Have, I understand her. When I was a little girl, I used to have a shirt that says, I put ketchup on my ketchup. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, so right. I was so, like, yeah, I, I was sad when I realized how much sugar was actually in it. So where do you it's get the shocking. sugar free? Yeah. So we get it at, I, I wish I could remember the name, but there are lots of sugar free options these days and, and people can find them. But when you are looking there, some sweeteners are better than others. So yeah, tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, the the typically the worst sweeteners or the ones to be the most careful with. I'll say it that way because there's a lot of variety in them. Are the ones that end with T O L. So these alls, these O L ending ones. These are things called sugar alcohols. Now that does not mean they're like alcohol, like that is going to get someone drunk, but they are these kind of derivatives these kind of molecular altered, we've altered just the structure. And so they are typically man-made and some of them are, are no problem. Um, like erythritol, for example, is a good one. It has no spike on insulin, which is how I define good or bad um, sweeteners. Other ones like um, maltitol has an effect. Xylitol has a modest insulin effect. Now the one consideration with all of these, all of them can give can make the stomach upset if someone takes too much because they don't get absorbed into the body and so they stay in our intestines and they can pull in water and they can just make the, the guts a little bubbly and maybe even a little loose potentially so don't ever take too much if you take too much you'll know i have you done that yeah I, I i raise <laughs> my yeah, hand it gets, it gets, <laughs> been there. Yeah, so have i so have i it's it's a learning experience yeah. once you've done it you don't you, you don't do it again um, and then, and then we can sort of uh, progress. And then the most commonly consumed sweetener, because it's in diet sodas, is aspartame, and that has no effect on insulin. So I would say that if someone wants, so I, you know what, one treat that you guys could try. Also, in some evenings, I will get a can of diet root beer. This sounds bizarre, and I'm not necessarily advocating it because it's a raw egg, which I actually don't fear. I eat raw eggs fairly often, but I will put some ice water in a blender crack in a little bit of ice water and then crack in a can of, of diet root beer and then put one egg in and then yeah. blend it for just about five seconds, a whole egg. And it tastes like a delicious, creamy root beer float. And it's just, <laughs> Oh my gosh, that sounds terrible. And for, for people listening, so a lot of listeners are international, not a lot, but some of them are in the U S raw eggs tend 
so I've like read about this on, online quite a bit. And one of the misconceptions is salmonella and, and raw eggs. Yep, yep. But the risk of that is like 0.00001 or whatever yep, in the yep. U.S. Like it's yes, not right. even a risk in the U.S. for the most part. And that, that's why I say that with a bit of a caveat. If you live outside the U.S., though, it may not be a good idea because I don't know how yeah, eggs and, are. And just remember, someone could just remember the salmonella. But again, I'm not advocating anyone trying this. But I do, in fact – no, we, appre- we appreciate we, we would we would appreciate the raw, the you know, how how you yeah, actually these, eat. The, the, the salmonella will be on the shell, the outside of the egg, and in the U.S. they've been so sterilized and clean, which wipes out all the salmonella. Interestingly, it's also it gives the eggs in the U.S. a shorter shelf life. If you mm. don't scrub and sterilize the outside of the egg, it can last on on the counter room temperature for a very very long time. Oddly enough, but nevertheless. Give it a try. It is so much yummier than you think. <laughs> it would have yeah, to be so much yummier than I think because I think it sounds horrific, but I'll oh, try it. <laughs> so from a, from, a, from a metabolic perspective, because aspartame, there's a lot of studies about it being bad in other ways, but from a metabolic perspective, and I didn't know this, aspartame, yep. purely from looking at how it affects insulin, aspartame yep. doesn't spike insulin, doesn't have an yep, insulin that's right. effect. And, and, I, and I don't I mean did to not be know a defender that. of aspartame, and so I wouldn't want anyone to think that. What I am a defender of is data. And the evidence, the, the fear that people have of aspartame, I think, honest to goodness, is very overblown. Now, I don't mean to be advocating diet sodas. I'm not trying to justify it for anyone. I would just say the data that people like to cite fearing aspartame, if you apply those same rules with regards to cancer, to sugar, then you would be much more afraid of sugar than you would of aspartame. So the studies that have linked aspartame to cancer are studies that have given rats not only rats that have a high tendency to get cancer anyway, but they've given them what is called super physiological doses of aspartame. More aspartame in a few weeks than a human would eat in, in his or her whole life. Very Interesting. Likely. And so to me, those data are need to be taken with a bit of, of sort of cynicism. Um, and, and then once again, like I know there's a guy that I go to church with, very unhealthy, and he will drink normal full sugar sodas. And one time I said to him, hey – well, I think maybe I was drinking a diet soda. And he's like, oh, I don't want that aspartame. And, and I thought, oh, boy, buddy, um, you, you, should, you should be fearing the sugar because sugar also drives cancer growth. But, but that's almost sort of beside the point. So nevertheless yeah, – This is a total tangent we've got on that's just fascinating. Raw eggs uh, and diet yeah, I know, beer. I know. Yeah, I keep, I keep distracting myself. It's <laughs> no, my own fault. that's hilarious. That so is hilarious. Is, with regards to metabolic health and insulin has no effect – and then we get to sort of the genuinely natural sweeteners like stevia and monk fruit and like pure monk fruit. And these are typically powders and they're very, very sweet, which means someone would use very little of it. They're also, uh, Jennifer, as you well know, they're difficult to bake with in their natural states because it doesn't give any of the kind of sticky, gooey consistency that you get. And so I'm not suggesting people use these in replacement of, of every sweetener, but stevia and monk fruit are the ones that I consider the best because they are natural and they have no um, insulin effect. But it's interesting then because like if you look at a pack of stevia in the raw, it's got mm-hmm. like all kinds of ingredients besides stevia. I mean, it's I think it's got maltodextrin or maybe dextrose. I can't remember which, but I was remember thinking, wow, which all spike your insulin at least in my research. And so how oh, yes. we, we've got to get them in this pure form. So I, I mean, is the liquid stevia the best? Is a you know because we need to look at the ingredients and make sure that a bunch of 
other ingredients aren't being added, not just say stevia and monk fruit are great. Let's, you know, eat them however. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, most of these stevia powders will come with uh, like a pure glucose filler to give it some kind of some substance to it when you're pouring it out. And so if someone wants to be adding stevia to things like their tea or, or, or similar or certain baking items, then yeah, I would suggest uh, a liquid version of that. Or they just get the pure powder and they just know they're going to use very, very little of it. Yeah, I know with monk fruit, literally, it's like a 16th of a teaspoon and you it, yeah. it sweetens everything. Of course, you can't bake with that. So the kind I bake with is that Lakanto, which has the erythritol and the monk fruit in it. Yep. Are you okay yep. with that one? I, I am, yep, because the erythritol will kind of melt and, and cook like sugar does, and, and the erythritol has no insulin effect. So that's a fine combination. Yeah, because when, when we were designing the refined carbs deal, I couldn't, from reading and Googling, figure out which sweeteners were good, which were bad. How to, So we just said no sweeteners except for monk fruit and... I think, did we do monk fruit and erythritol? We did monk fruit and erythritol. Monk fruit and erythritol. And we said it had to be added by us. It couldn't be added by the company because I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. It, it, they make yeah. it so yeah. hard to figure out what's actually in stuff yeah. that our yeah, original yeah. deal was, yeah. But I guess if we were to redo the deal today, we would allow for a liquid stevia mm-hmm. as well. And also speaking of, of, our meal guide. So, you know, obviously you take the most information, the best research information that you have, and that's what we put into our meal guide. And, and when we send it to you, I, I don't, I think you probably remember me saying, tear it apart. I want you to tear it apart. Yeah. I want you to tell me what I'm getting wrong because I want to learn. And one thing that you said, kind of tearing it apart was my, powder that I was using my protein powder because it was a plant-based and this was very interesting to me because I think, oh, plant-based, this must be a really good organic protein source. It's pea protein, but explain what you said to me about the plant-based proteins because that was worrisome to me and I'm going to have to go back and revise um, for those plant proteins. Yep. Yep. That's right. In fact, I'm thrilled you're bringing attention to this because I think it is one of the biggest fiascos of, of modern, um, well, supplements. And, and there's something to be said for the convenience of shakes and supplements where it's busy. It's hard to know what to eat all the time. There's just something, there'll always be a place for something like a meal replacement shake. So I, I totally get the interest that people have. And I get the, the compelling kind of, marketing that we have with organic plant-based proteins but in every way and i will be very i'll use very strong clear language explicit every plant protein is inferior to any animal protein in multiple ways so firstly no plant proteins do not contain the proper balance of amino acids for for optimal human nutrition whereas every animal protein does. So in that regard, plant proteins are inferior. And this is demonstrably the case. There, this is, you can, act, you can, we know this. Every book it's I've ever debate. read, every podcast from a doctor I've ever heard has all said this as well. Yeah, it is, it is fact. I would invite people there. there I think it's an open access manuscript called Protein, which is the best. This is published by a nutritional scientist. So one, you're not going to get the right mix of amino acids. Two, all plant proteins contain things called anti-nutrients. And that sounds, it's, I know what it, it sounds like I'm talking about like unicorns and, imagine, and imaginary things here, but 
um, these plants contain anti-nutrients, and these are molecules that inhibit the body's ability to break down um, the, the protein. And so not only do, do we not get the right mix of amino acids, but we're also not even getting the amino acids we think we're getting because our guts can't digest them all the way. And these are things like trypsin inhibitors or tannins or lectins or phytic acids. They are in, anyone could look up any of the words I'm using. This is, again, it sounds like I'm kind of being some, some well, nut job mentioning it, but these are real. We know them. They, these are real substances that are in these plant proteins. And then lastly, once again, just like we don't want these anti-nutrients, one other thing we don't want that we get a lot of with plant proteins, even if it's organic, are heavy metals. Um, people, anyone listening could look up this, these, this work by something called the Clean Label Project, a not-for-profit third party that does various analyses in, in numerous ways. It's kind of like consumer reports. Uh, what they found was that uh, the, these plant proteins had, had dangerously high levels of lead and arsenic. And these, are heavy, these metals stay in the body. When we eat them, they start to get enriched in the tissues and in the cells of our bodies. We should studiously avoid these however we can. And so the prop, now, now we take all that fact that plant proteins are inferior in every way for human health. And then we think, well, why are they so ubiquitous now? And that is partly the fault of the manufacturer. And when we were making complete meal shake, we asked ourselves, do, well, that came up in the discussion. Do we want plant proteins? Because two reasons, they are so much cheaper than the best animal proteins like whey and egg whites. They're so much cheaper. You could lower the price of your product by quite a bit if so you we use could, those. Yes, we could lower the price or we could make more money from every sale. And then two, it would allow us to kind of you know, virtue signal to the, to the potential buyer and say, Hey, we're plant-based. These are organic. And people just get so seduced by that that we thought, well, then we can sell more shake that way. But I couldn't do it. The scientist in me was just so repelled at the thought of putting in something that one is what I believe is not, is absolutely inferior. That's beyond my belief. That's fact. And then two, what I believe was unethical. I couldn't do it. We focused on the more expensive, um, animal-based proteins, namely whey and egg white, which are the best, and we put in collagen as well, um, and, and which is also, of course, animal-based. But yeah, the plant protein market, uh, I think, really, I think it's a, I think it's a fiasco. I, no one should be eating plant-based proteins. Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say, and, and, and the way I was thinking about this is like, so say this pea protein, if I'm going to serve my kids, you know, some peas for dinner, that's fine because I'm giving them maybe 200 peas or whatever. Hopefully I can get, right. you know, 200 peas yep. down them. Whereas these pea proteins, they're taking just hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions because there isn't naturally that much protein in every pea. So they've got to take so much of it and then, you know, process it down to get enough protein. And so that's why we're getting so many of the metals is because we're not actually just giving them 200 peas, which wouldn't be that much, you know, of a problem oh, right. at all. It's fine. It'd be nothing. But when we're taking these massive amounts in order to get that to that protein point, we're just giving way too many heavy metals. Is that, is yeah, am well I saying said. that? that yeah, okay. Well said. Yeah. It takes, it takes a phenomenal amount of, of, of say peas, which is the most popular nowadays to get a serving of protein. And the protein is the one thing we want to get and we're concentrating all these peas, but we end up just like you said, we get a lot of what we don't want in, in that same process. These anti-nutrients and these heavy metals, we don't want that stuff. That's the garbage. 
but they come along as we are unnaturally getting protein from something that should would never have been a source of protein. It's laughable to think that our ancestors would have gotten their protein from from any plant, any plant. It's 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 absolutely a, a, a myth to think that way. We get protein from animal sources, and I appreciate, I really do, the potential ethical dilemma that someone might face when when they when they when they face the reality that I've I've killed something in order for me to live. And not to wax philosophical or even religious, but a, a reality of our world of, of, of life as we know it is something must die for something to live. At every level, a plant that is blossoming and growing, much of the nutrition from that plant is coming from dead insects in the ground. It's coming from the nutrients from, from decomposing carcasses nearby or in factory farming. We're getting a lot of that nitrogen and the fertilizer from animal stuff like the blood and the bones, these kind of unused aspects of, of animals from, from ranching. So everything, even a plant has to eat something that was dead. And when someone eats a plant, well, of course we've killed the plant. We've taken its seeds and, and not allowed that plant to reproduce. And of course it gets harder, more ethical when this thing has a face and we're looking at it and it's an animal and, and alive as we de typically define life. But I also think that is why when we do eat, and I, I don't mean for this to sound religious, but we should be grateful for that life that we that, that is spent so that we can live, whether it is a formal prayer and we're thanking God for the food um, because it is something that died for us to live, or whether it is just a, a, a moment of acknowledging this died for me. That, 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 it doesn't have to be a moral dilemma. In contrast, I think it can also be, dare I say, a beautiful moment of appreciating the world we live in where all life comes from some death. That's really interesting. So let's just say, um, I don't want to eat meat. I don't like meat. Can I get enough protein from or guess say, how, egg how whites? Do we get, how do you get protein or whey if you want to be or... vegetarian? Because growing up, I went to school with a lot of people um, who were Hindu and didn't eat, uh, you know, they were vegetarian and mm -hmm. at I mean, I was a kid, so I didn't really think about any of this. Yeah. Uh, but if you are vegetarian, whatever, regardless of whatever your reasons are, whether they be ethical, religious, whatnot, mm -hmm. um, how do you get, what, what do you supplement? And we, we can spend very little time on this, but what do you supplement yeah. with? Yeah. So typically, um, many of these cultures where it is vegetarian sort of religiously, they will still eat things like dairy, from what I understand. Um, as opposed to the kind of modern kind of vegan push, which would be an absence of everything. So in most instances of sort of informed vegetarianism, they will eat dairy and or eggs or cheese, in, in which case you will get the protein you need. Got it. And, and you'll be fine. You'll get the vitamin B12 you need. Um, and, and I mean, you'd, you'd have to get a little creative on the iron because you can't get sufficient iron from plants. Um, uh, it's not the right kind, but be that as it may, you're certainly going to get the right protein. But if someone's vegan, um, then I, I truly, uh, once again, I'll be kind of strong worded here. Uh, that is incompatible with human, um, life. We are not, we are not vegan animals. One other question I have, and we're starting to get long here so we can, can end soon. But, uh, I remember when I read the ingredients for your health code, uh, product, 
before I had tried it, I was like, ah, I don't think I'm going to like this because it has whey. And I have this, typically whey just makes me really bloated. For yeah. whatever reason, I don't get bloated with the health code shakes. It's not obvious to me why that is. Oh, it is to me. Okay. Maybe just just for anyone else who's listening, who's like, ah, way, I get so bloated. This is not my oh, no, jam. I totally, I totally get it. Uh, I absolutely understand. Um, part of the benefit could be the bile salts. So when, when someone eats um, fat, part of the process of digesting fat will be that we have this release of bile from our gallbladder. And the bile will be sort of pushed into the intestines and it will start emulsifying the fat, separating the fat out to help the fat get digested better. Now, one of the unknown aspects of bile is that bile also helps with protein digestion. So, Stephen, in your small intestine, you may just, for, for whatever reason, you just don't quite make enough of, I mean, a pure load of whey is just too much for your what we, what we call proteolytic enzymes. So the enzymes coming from your pancreas into the, into the intestines, because um, that's the source of these digestive enzymes. It actually comes from the pancreas. So when the pancreas is pushing these protein-digesting enzymes into the intestines, you just aren't getting enough. But when you combine those protein-digesting enzymes with bile, but the bile won't be there unless you've eaten fat with your protein, now the bile helps those proteolytic enzymes work better. And so once again, we come back to this feature of nature where God designed fat and protein to come together. The best protein sources like whey and egg and, 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 and from meat comes with fat. And I think that's how we should eat protein. So this, this supplement obsession on just whey, nope, that is unnatural. Um, and I hate to mean unnatural, I don't mean to sound silly, but the protein won't work as well and you won't digest it as well. Put it with some fat. Now it will be digested better and it will work better. So that's why Stephen, like you, and I've heard this from many other people, they will say, oh, well, that's a whey, an egg white base, but, but the way I kind of have trouble with, I always just say, give it a try. I think you'll be surprised. And they're always delighted. Yeah. Okay. Really fast, Ben, your favorite fats, not, I'm not talking like, you know, um, that, that comes on your meat, but what yeah. oils do you use? Yeah. Uh, so what, what fats, oils? Yeah. yeah. So oils, um, fats, I, you know, what, what, yeah. what do you typically like to cook with? Like I always use a little bit when I'm doing my vegetables, what, what are your favorites? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So uh, just with regards to fats in general, I say we should eat fats the way our ancestors did, which is fats from animals and fats from fruits. Now that is, not the way we eat fats nowadays where the most common fats are like soybean oil and corn oil. Those are not, those are seed oils, refined seed oils. So the fruit oils are coconuts, avocados, and olives. And they really cover a pretty wonderful spectrum of, of oil in different type. So briefly, if someone is cooking and they're heating something up to a very high degree, uh, high temperature on, on a pan, like on a stovetop, then you want to use a more saturated fat like coconut oil because it's more saturated. It's more stable and it will maintain its structure. And part of the danger of fats in the body, like with heart disease is when the fat has become something called a, a peroxide and, and not to get too technical, but that's when the fat becomes unstable due to say temperature changes. So coconut oil is very stable because it's very heavily saturated. And so you can heat it up 
and it will not it will not um, be altered. It will not become a peroxide. So it's a healthier fat in that regard. But if it's at room temperature, then of course coconut oil won't work. And then you can go to something like olive oil or avocado oil because it's monounsaturated. It's it's still relatively stable. Indeed, pure virgin co- uh, olive oil. Sorry, pure virgin olive oil is very stable, but it has one little unsaturated bond, and so it's not as stable at higher temperatures. But because of that one little unsaturated bond, it's a liquid at room temperature, so it's perfect for things like salad dressing or drizzling on vegetables if you're just going to lightly roast them or whatever. That becomes the perfect oil there. Um, really fast. You know I love to grind my own wheat and make my own bread, which yeah. <laughs> which we were discussing um, the other day that you know a lot of people eat for – many different reasons. And often nutrition is not one of those highest reasons that sometimes having a warm loaf of bread come out of the oven and lathering it with butter is, it does something for the soul. So we as a family, well, we as a family have carved out on the weekends, I grind my own wheat. It's made of three different kinds of wheat and we'll have a bread. Now I am trying to make sourdough whole wheat bread because I know that you mentioned sourdough is much better for the gut because I think the bacteria goes in and eats the glucose or the starches, if that was, am I understanding correctly? But let's just talk bread for just a second. I'm going to carve out about two slices a week that I'm going to eat, even if you tell me I can't, <laughs> just because it makes me feel so good. I don't do, I, will, I don't I do store-bought, <laughs> but so, so talk to me about, do we it, nutritionally anything is is bread yeah. is bread just a treat yeah yeah so it is but it is i love what you said jennifer i totally agree we can't ignore the fact that food has a culture and one of the most strong indicators of sort of hearth and home is is freshly baked bread there's there is something just almost magical about that and i would never want to deny someone that i've never i would never say they couldn't have that now it doesn't change the fact that there's no biological need for the bread it's not really providing um nutritional needs but that doesn't mean it has to be uh, a, a terrible indulgence so now, uh, once upon a time when our when we would eat carbohydrates like including bread they would always be fermented whether it was dairy that was fermented whether it was vegetables where we ferment them into pickles or sauerkraut um, or even bread. And before the advent of quick acting yeast, we would have to allow the bread to rise based on its own bacteria that we would have put in it because of a, a, a starter. And so essentially what we do with sourdough, part of the, the magic of it is that we allow the bacteria in the sourdough to eat the starches of the bread. Now, there's two benefits there. One, we have less starch. So when we actually eat a piece of sourdough bread, there is, in fact, significantly less carbohydrate coming from that because the bacteria have already eaten it for us because that's what bacteria eat. Bacteria only eat glucose, nothing else. And then two, after the bacteria eat the, the glucose from the bread, they make these little things called short-chain fatty acids. What is so interesting about the short-chain fats is that they not only give the bread its tart taste, its tart flavor, that is the direct result of those little fats, but they also act as very beneficial metabolic signals in the body. As we eat these short-chain fats, not only can they feed our good bacteria in our intestine, but they can also 
or, or help the, the cells of our, of our intestine, but we can also absorb these short chain fats and then and get a metabolic boost. Short chain fats can increase ketone production, increase mitochondrial production and improve insulin sensitivity. So sourdough bread is much different in, in, in composition and benefit from just conventional baked bread. Well, I made my first loaf. It takes forever and ever and ever. I made my first loaf. Well, started yes. yesterday and completed today. I still haven't tasted it yet, but I'll have to let you know. I hope I hope I can figure out really how yes. to do this sourdough thing because it, it's, I just love, like you said, that wonderfulness of, of a warm loaf of bread. Yeah. Well, I look, I envy it. I wish I were there to nibble <laughs> on it with you guys. Enjoy. We will. Thank well, you. Before we wrap up and I've you know waited almost an hour for you, but I don't think that you have the disposition to self-promote. So I'll do a little self-promoting for you. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book you just came out with? I'm about halfway through right. it and it is, in my opinion, fascinating. Um, why don't you, just for anyone listening who's like, hey, I really enjoyed this. I'm an hour into this podcast and I still want to know more. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, hey, Stephen, thanks. Yeah, so I, I did write a book just because once again, like with the, uh, health coach shake. Uh, no one else had done this yet. And, and so the book is basically helping make the case that insulin resistance matters. And the name of the book is why we get sick. And I basically break the book up into three parts. What is insulin resistance and why does it matter? Like including all the diseases that come from it. And then the second part of the book is what to do about it. Some of the strategies that I've mentioned here. And then the third part, or sorry, the second part of the book is where, where the insulin resistance comes from. That's the middle part. And then the third part is what to do about it. And, and that's some very practical advice with nutritional tips, including some options for meals. Um, but it, the book is available anywhere books are sold. I, I deeply appreciate the support. Anyone who's curious about what we've been talking about, the book will very likely be an eye-opening experience. And I hope, frankly, fundamentally change the way a person will look at their own health. So rather than going to the doctor's office and being diagnosed with hypertension, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome and diabetes and leaving with three specific prescriptions for three different medications, they can actually look at those three problems and say, well, all of those problems are derivative of one single thing. They're all coming from insulin resistance. And then when you accept that, then lifestyle can become so powerful because just modest lifestyle changes, including what we've been talking about today, has the power to totally reverse insulin resistance and then start addressing all of those chronic diseases. And then I'll, I'll kind of return the favor. The, the meal guide that you guys are going to be releasing as well, I think it is such a practical guide where, where someone could, they could read my book, Why We Get Sick, and they could go to the, the meal guide that you guys have made, the Turtle Creek Lane, and, and really come away with some very practical um, application of the scientific principles that I really try to stress in the book. And then I am, I'm moderately active on social media. And I was going to say, where, where can people follow you? I think you're most active on, is it Instagram or Twitter? You can just yeah, tell more us what more it is Instagram. Actually. I yeah. just find that I enjoy the, the crowd on Instagram a little more. Twitter's I do too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I find like I'm kind of leaving Twitter a bit, but on, on Instagram, it's Ben Bickman and that's no C in Bickman, B I K M A N. Ben Bickman, PhD, and and it, really my my goal there is just uh, science. I'll do little video snippets typically, or just share some of the recently published 
um, work in the realm of human metabolism, but it's just my effort to be a scientist sharing some it's of kind the of a dangerous profession nowadays. Oh, geez. Yeah, yeah. Those, yeah. With COVID-19, uh, people, people don't want to hear from scientists anymore. I don't blame them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's a surprisingly controversial and, and also, place to be. I'll say I'll be providing more and more ebook and blog content on the Get Health HLTH dot com site in the near future. Perfect, perfect. Well, yeah, Ben, I, thank you. Are you? Are you oh no, I just, I just I cannot stress. I freaking love Health Code as a product. It is fantastic. But I'm thrilled. Anyways. Well, and I just appreciate so much all that I have learned. Ben and I had a, a conversation a, a week or so ago, and I just fired questions at him for, I think, about two and a half hours. He was like, oh, my <laughs> gosh, who is this woman? No. But I just, I want, okay, well, I just really want to understand and I want to help my followers live their best healthy life. And so, you know, like I said, I need to make some changes to our healthy living guide because I now have new information and it's not a lot of change, but I need to tweak a couple things. And I just appreciate so much you being honest with me and telling me, you know, research-based, you know, because all we can do is go on the very best research we currently have. I mean, a year from now, there will be more tweaks as we learn more. Yeah, but we're doing the very, very best we can with what the information is that we have. So thank you so much for taking your time. I know you're busy to visit with us today and hopefully it's been super helpful. I know it has for me. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you both so much. All right. Bye-bye. We'll talk another time. Bye. Bye.